0: Welcome everybody to the podcast. We have a great episode today, a really topical topic, talking about physician, healthcare worker, mental health and wellness and all that stuff. I have Dr. Demetrios Sitaris. He is a board certified practicing psychiatrist specializing in the field of anxiety management. He is a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at Northeast Ohio Medical University. He studies and writes about the interface of anxiety and achievement. His popular Psychology Today blog, Anxiety and High Achievers, has been read by more than 600,000 readers. He's a TEDx speaker who speaks on the topic at national conferences, academic institutions, and professional society meetings. He's passionate about empowering people to break free from the shackles of anxiety and develop a healthy relationship with achievement. Through his work as a psychiatrist, writer, and speaker, he seeks to fulfill this mission. This was a great talk. Uh, we had a good time. We'd worked before in the past, so it was a good way to reconnect as well. So enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We have a great Guest on the show. This is Dr. Demetrios. I'm going to let him introduce himself first, and then we'll ask him the surprise question and go from there. So,
1: hey, Dr. Solman, it's uh, good to uh, reconnect with you again. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Demetrius, uh, practicing uh, board-certified uh, psychiatrist and uh, clinical assistant professor uh, in Northeast Ohio, and I, um, you know, study and write about the interface of uh, mental health and uh, achievement. I write for the uh, blog Psychology uh, Today, and I've also had the opportunity to you know, give to speak on the topic. Uh, actually, this upcoming Wednesday, we're presenting at the American Psychiatric Association, so I'll be flying out in a couple of days to San Francisco and looking yeah. forward to meeting some of our colleagues there.
0: I know. I, I keep like, I think I'm like uh, not necessarily a member. I keep forgetting to like renew my membership, and then everyone's like, oh, are you going to the meeting? I was like, oh, wait, the meeting's happening now, and I was like, oh, my God, I have to I have to remember to go to one of these one day. So,
1: yeah, a lot of folk starts. Good uh, place to uh, connect with uh, our fellow yeah. peers from different parts of the country. Yeah
0: yeah I know that we had we originally connected through clubhouse um what was it like a couple years ago where I think it was and remember Clubhouse before I think clubhouse has died essentially Twitter species has kind of taking that over um but clubhouse we were we were part of like this group where we'd get together on Sunday nights and kind of open it up and discuss all kinds of things so yeah we were doing that for a little bit and then it kind of like fizzled out a little bit so
1: yeah, but it's really nice to like connect with like peers. You know, sometimes it feels like we're isolated, just you know, going yeah. through the grind, and it's kind of nice to meet with peers, like you know, and uh, you know, share thoughts, you know, yeah. and also even uh, just uh, meet in person. So again, thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. Really excited to, uh, to have the opportunity to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So first question we'll ask you, right? I get this question a bunch, and I think it's it's interesting when I get it for other people, but. How do you pronounce your last name?
1: <laughs> My last name uh, is pronounced Dr. Satiris like satire. Uh, if you want to say it the Greek word, it's satiaides, uh, but most people struggle with that in the uh, beginning part of the name. So uh, I just call it satiris like satire to make everyone's yeah. life easier. yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: how How often do you get do you get that question from people?
1: Uh, quite a few times, but you know that's why I go by Dr. Demetrius most often. You know that yeah. way that's a little more easy for uh, people,
0: yeah. I think it's it's one of those things that like people don't always you know when we're when people look like me when they're brown people or they're like not necessarily born in America or whatever else people are like oh how do I say your name and am I saying this order I'm not even going to try to say your name but then we have like you know white peoples and then (laughs) and then the people are like wait how do I say this how do I do this so all right so we're going to start off we were going to discuss high achieving people anxiety people and then kind of a little more focused about on healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, et cetera, and kind of their mental health, right? Because I think it's something that a lot of people know about, but don't talk about. And then there's a culture around it and everything like that. So let's jump into that topic. Um, Tell me a little bit about like what kind of like your work, your specialty is, and then we'll kind of dive in.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, um, um, I've had the privilege of working with you know uh, people from all walks of life, many of whom are very you know achievement oriented. Um, for my hospital, for example, two days a week I treat the physicians. Um, two local hospitals, SUMA um, Health System and Akron Children's, are both in Akron, Ohio. They created a not-for-profit, the Akron Physician Wellness Initiative, and through that, I've had the privilege of treating. Um, quite a few docs, uh, in the area. Uh, but also like in the community, I've had the privilege of, you know, working with many, you know, achievement oriented people, uh, from all walks of life, business leaders, uh, you know, lawyers, dentists, you name it. And, uh, having that, um, experience, you know, I guess gives me some, um, understanding of what uh, achievement oriented folks go through and how we can help them.
0: Yeah. What are, I mean, on your end, what do you see as like the most common struggles that they're going through, these higher achieving people per se, higher achievement, I should say, not higher achieving, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, from a mental health standpoint, uh, you know, what I observe is a high amount of uh, depression and anxiety. And what I try to teach them is that, you know, just because you're doing well in one facet of life, like professionally, that doesn't make you immune to suffering, right? Right. Um, yeah. An example might be somebody who appears cool, calm, and collected at work, and you know they they appear confident and they're carrying uh, the load there. But then when they come home, they appear to be easily irritated, tense, stressed. They're not connecting with their kids or their spouse, and they might need a couple drinks at night mm-hmm. to uh, cool their nerves, right? To calm down their nerves. And what I try to teach them is that if you don't take care of all this other stuff, eventually it's going to come back to bite you and impact your ability. Uh, to work and your work performance. Um, so what I try to teach them, tr- tr- what I try to help them with is finding that balance between being achievement oriented, uh, but also prioritizing uh, their mental health.
0: And it's hard, right? Because of the culture of medicine, I think, right? Medicine as a whole, the caring professions, right? Dentistry as well, nursing, et cetera, all that stuff is you're You're taught from like the beginning to be selfless, right? And to take care of other people. And you know, even before the residency hours were changed, it was like just work, 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 and no matter what. And that's the end of the day. That's what's the most important stuff. So, what are some ways, I think, to kind of c- combat or kind of unbreak these tight bonds that are there with this?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a couple layers to this. If we're going to talk about achievers, uh, what I would mm-hmm. say is that, Society has become more competitive, you know, behaviors associated with the attainment of status and success, they're on the rise. Um, So as a result, you know, we're pushing ourselves harder than ever before uh, to achieve our goals. And this makes sense, right? Like when you think about our parents, uh, in that generation, you get a college degree, you're set for life professionally. Today, though, if you get a college degree, the only thing that you're guaranteed with is um, student loans, you know, right? Yeah. So society is more uh, competitive. The other thing that achievers do—the one f- trap that we fall for—is that we tie our self-worth to our achievements.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if we're not achieving, we don't feel good about ourselves at all, right? Um, and what I try to teach people is that your self-worth—it goes beyond your successes and failures. You know, my my dad's a cook, my my mom's a cashier at a grocery store. Money was tight growing up. Uh, through their love and support, have become a doc, Um, I am not more worthy than my parents because our worth is part of our humanity. It's an innate, essential part of who we are. And what I try to help people do is tie their self-worth to their humanity, uh, not their achievements. Um, As far as healthcare now and physicians, uh, what we struggle with is the fact that there are so many systemic factors that are at play that when combined with our personality traits, they make us vulnerable to suffering. Right. And you know, if you want to, we can dive into some of these systemic forces,
0: let's let's do that because i think a lot of people sometimes you know we i think us as like healthcare providers as docs who are working in a hospital system like we know (laughs) the drama we know the kind of the stressors that are kind of there a lot of it is kind of we've just assumed it and we're just like okay this is part of the deal right this is part of part of the price per se that comes with the cost that comes with working in a healthcare system versus going into private practice and things like that so yeah if you don't mind talking about that a little bit
1: yeah i mean definitely so um one example of a systemic force that impacts the mental health of physicians is the culture of medicine right we're taught to yeah. be stoic we're taught to sacrifice ourselves and as a result you know prioritizing our mental health doesn't come natural to to us Another example is the bias in medicine, right? There's discrimination against uh, women, for example, who get paid less than men, or yeah. international medical graduates, right? Um, there's even interspecialty discrimination, I would argue, where maybe some specialists look down upon yeah. primary care or psychiatry, right? Um, for employees, there's often a loss of autonomy that happens. And it's really hard for a physician to, like, you know, we've worked so hard to become physicians, but then people who do not have a medical background make decisions that impact our ability to practice day-to-day medicine, right? Um, So that's another example of a systemic force. Um, Also having to meet quality uh, metrics that are often not congruent with quality care. An example may be patient satisfaction scores that uh, employee physicians have to meet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about if a patient came to me and they're struggling with, with alcoholism, and they ask for a controlled substance like Xanax uh, to calm their nerves, to to cope with anxiety, right? And I say no to them, that's good quality care. Like you don't want to give Xanax to somebody who's struggling with alcoholism, they may overdose and die, Sure. but I might get a poor patient satisfaction score that hurts me, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, What other forces? Oh, the fear of being sued, that's another one, right? Where we're expected to be perfect, and if you make one mistake, one mistake, and have one negative outcome. Uh, there's a f- the risk of being sued. Yeah. Right. So there are all these systemic forces that I can continue to talk about <laughs> that impact our mental health, and then yeah. we, when you combine them with our traits, it creates a cocktail that makes us vulnerable uh, to suffering.
0: Yeah, I think we we know like in our work. You know, you touch up on it with the administrators who make decisions for us and have to have control over how we do our work, right? Mm-hmm. I think all docs who have, like, complained, right? I think we, a lot of we like to complain. Anybody who's, like, complained or spoke up or said something about it, I don't think they dislike being a doctor and doing doctoring, right? They, they like the physician part of it. They like working with patients and a team and all that stuff. It's the healthcare, I mean, it's the management stuff, right? It's the aspect of being told that you have to do things in a certain time period, a certain way, documentation has to be a certain way, and done by X, Y, and Z, like all these kind of outside stuff that gets in the way of the patient-doctor bond and what the work is, what we got into it for.
1: It's the loss of autonomy, right? It's, yeah. a, 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 it's being seen as a, as a resource instead of a human being. There's a reason mm-hmm. there's an HR Human resources, right? So we're seen as a resource, like how much are we producing? And when hospitals go through challenges, financial challenges following COVID or being short-staffed, what do they do? They ask the doctor to do more work, right? So it's that loss of autonomy and being seen as a resource instead of a human being uh, that really hurts emotionally docs at the end of the
0: day. Yeah. And how ultimately it comes down to dollars and cents, right? So end of the day, that's how it goes. So the I think it was actually when when you had mentioned that there was a, tell me about that, there was the coalition that was there between the physician wellness thing about that. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. So
1: here in Akron, we have the Akron Physician Wellness Initiative. Uh, It's a not-for-profit between two local hospitals where we treat the medical staff of the two hospitals and we provide free and confidential uh, care, which has been really a rewarding experience.
0: Yeah. One of the most common things, right, when people talk about physician mental health and any kind of healthcare worker mental health is there's that question that shows up on a lot of the licensing, the state licensing, right, um, applications. Are you receiving any kind of mental health treatment? Um, and for a lot of people, a lot of states, right, I think there's been a move to kind of get rid of this, but it's not struck down everywhere yet. So I think it's really brave when you guys have a program that's there to be like, hey, we are acknowledging that this happens and we have set up a place for you, a resource for you to go to, because a lot of times that's a barrier, right? That's one of the things that people will not seek out that care for because of that, mm-hmm. correct?
1: A hundred percent. I mean, there's a number of barriers for us getting help, mm-hmm. one of which is the fact that like state medical licenses ask these these questions. And the irony is that by getting care, You become a better doctor spouse parent right Um, but when you don't get care and you live in secrecy that's when suffering grows suffering grows in isolation right and it's unfortunate that we have these barriers that prevent us from getting the care that we need because at the end of the day we're human beings And just because we're performing in one facet of life, it doesn't mean that we don't experience our struggles like any other human being, because life is filled with daily challenges.
0: Yeah. And when we suffer, it becomes into depression. And when we're not allowed to necessarily, we're supposed to get treatment, right? Then we find treatment in in other ways, correct?
1: Yeah, we do, right? We take matters in our own hands. And, you know, one way that we take matters in our own hands is we drink, right, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or we use comfort food, you know, we eat or we gamble or we engage in unhealthy uh, behaviors because we're trying to escape suffering. And one way that we do that is via um, self-soothing, self-medication. Uh, yeah. There was a survey they went out to, um, that was responded to by uh, 7,300 physicians, and it showed that uh, about 13% of male physicians and 21% of female physicians, and I can share this study with you, uh, sure. they met criteria for alcohol abuse or dependence. Yeah, And I would argue that those numbers are even higher because that survey had a low response rate. It was sent out to 27,000 docs. So it had a response rate of about 27%. And let's be real here. If I'm struggling with alcoholism, am I really putting that on an online survey that's quote anonymous, that can somehow, some way come back... Uh, yeah. and be linked to me of course not right yeah um, but that's what happens when you don't allow people to get care they get matters in their own hands mm-hmm. and some of those ways that we approach uh, receiving care can be unhealthy and even exacerbate the original problem
0: yeah I think you know again I'll do, I'll do a lot of work with like addiction work and alcohol I, I love working with alcohol and talking about alcohol in a way yeah. just because we know that you know it causes you know it does it help depression and anxiety in the moment sure right no one's denying that it makes you feel great and then you don't have to worry about stuff and then it wears off and then everything is worse right and it makes it all worse and how do we fix it when <laughs> how do we fix it when it wears off we drink some more right because we know that that worked and then it just creates this vicious vicious cycle so
1: and then we create a relationship with the alcohol right mm-hmm. you know because it happens in isolation. We push away our loved ones, and we engage in this behavior in secrecy. We hide the bottle, right? And when we look at the data, we see that 75% of cases, when there's comorbidity between alcohol and anxiety, in 75% of cases, the anxiety disorder comes first, followed by the alcohol use. So when people are struggling with anxiety, what's a logical thing to do? Have a drink. Yeah. Right?
0: because we get these social social messages as well from people like oh you're you're so tight just have a drink loosen up right yeah. and it's just the reinforcement and then you do and it does and so on and so forth it's just basic human psychology right amen so that's, all right what so then and then when this kind of gets to a point right so the the logical end point is we have super high suicide rates unfortunately in the field right
1: we do we do yeah um uh, there was a medscape survey that came out about a year ago and it showed that uh 10 of physicians either experience thoughts of uh suicide or have attempted suicide 10 percent of physicians and again the number is higher because when you look at the survey four percent say i don't want to answer yeah okay so the numbers are probably higher and they're higher compared to the general population and that's yeah. what happens when you're desperate you know, when when you feel desperate and you feel your your backs against the wall, then you engage in desperate ways of thinking uh, and behaving. And it makes sense to me, right? Because we've spent as physicians many years to get to where we're at, right? Four Mm -hmm. years of college, four years of med school, three to seven years of residency, many docs specialize in fellowship. You know, we come out with six figures of student loans. You know, we put all our um, chips in in medicine. So then when you come out and medicine isn't what you thought it was going to be, that's Mm -hmm. a very disheartening and deflating uh, experience. Um, So it makes sense that you want to escape that feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And it makes sense that then you would start to consider and reflect on suicide. But when in isolation, suicidal ideation grows and it festers and you think about it more and more and then it's only logical that you would, at some point, plan or attempt.
0: Yeah, and the other thing too is that, again, people don't always understand is that how traumatic medical training is, right? Not just from, people who are like, oh, it's terrible, and there's an abuse system, and you're from the attendings, and other people, and other residents, et cetera. Like, yeah, that's there too. <laughs> we know that, that that's there, but then we also know from the fact that, like again, the work that we're doing, the medical work that we're doing, people die, right? Patients die. Uh, patients get sick. You know, I, I always remember when, you know, I, I do a lot of child adolescent work and when I and during my fellowship, my internship, I rotated on the pediatrics floor, uh, pediatric medicine floor. And I would see the pediatric oncologist just crying in the hallway all the time. And I was like, oh my God, I could never do that work. And then they look at me and talk with me and they're like, oh my God, you're doing child adolescent psychiatry. I could never do that work. Right. And it's, it's the constant aspect of like, nobody can do some of this work. And that trauma as well, and then the training trauma, and it just goes on, right?
1: A hundred percent. That's an excellent point, right? That people don't come to see us because they're happy; they come to see us because there's a problem, mm-hmm. and we're in the front lines of trauma. You know, be it seeing it, you know, like critical care ER docs, right, or actually hearing about it, uh, because adverse childhood events are very common, right? And many yeah. of our patients they've experienced some sort of traumatic event in their lives. And we're exposed to that. And we're trying to process that with our, with our patients. Right. And you do that day after day after day, it's not realistic to expect that physician, that human being not to be impacted by that. Right. Right. So then to like ask questions about us seeking help, uh, it just, you know, which is a barrier to us seeking help. It, it just doesn't make much sense to me.
0: Yeah. And it's, yeah, you know, and then I work outside of like the DC area. So I work with you know, federal agents, FBI people, and I, I talk about it like that. I've worked with people who are who do like child pornography kind of uh, agents, right? They do a lot of the work for that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and they're they're limited, right? A lot of like these agents, they're limited to like how many years that they can do that work for, right? Because they know uh, FBI and everybody, these agencies know that like, hey, you try to tell people to look at this stuff for decades, what's going to happen to them? They're they're ruined for life, right? And that the, those same privileges, those same protections don't extend to medical people work, right? We're, we're expected to work until we're like 67 years old, right?
1: Yeah, I don't understand the double standard. I agree with you. You know, I think yeah. society puts these unrealistic expectations on us as if we are not human, right? And we try to fulfill these expectations, either within the culture of medicine or even from society. Um, and it's just not sustainable long term. So yeah. I completely agree with you, yeah.
0: And all that's happening regularly, like if everything was all well and good, that's just a normal day in the life of healthcare workers, right? And then COVID happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then that helped, COVID right? Happened. Yeah. How from from your experience, what you saw? Um, I know everyone has got like their stories and stuff, and people are like, "Oh, we're done with it." I was like, "We're not fully, fully done with COVID, right?" Um, but how is that? What's what has been the impact that you've seen amongst the, the people that you work with
1: yeah i think it's gone through phases i think initially when it happened you know people saw us as heroes you know and we were idealized uh, and that felt good it, it reignited our passion for medicine at least initially but uh, at some point we were vilified you know because let's, let's be honest the pandemic wore people out and when we're you know Encouraging vaccinations and taking safety measures—you can imagine how you know people might have you know uh, scrutinized us, for example, and looked um, uh, at us as like being in with pharma, for example, right? So I think a lot of physicians have been emotionally hurt uh, from the experience. You know, they feel maybe betrayed by the fact that like, hey, I made these sacrifices to try to promote uh, health, and what I'm getting is uh, being looked like looked at as the bad guy. And an additional layer to this, from a pragmatic standpoint, is how um, hospitals are hurting financially from the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many hospitals are, for example, short staffed. They have a hard time getting enough physicians or nurses. So, what's happening now? They're putting more pressure on the docs, the ones who are remaining. And you got to see more patients, you got to get double booked, right? And um, this is increasing um, one's level of. Uh, anxiety trying to keep up with ever-increasing expectations, yeah. right? So uh, we're short-staffed and the hospital's struggling financially. Hospitals are struggling financially. And what, what's their log- logical uh, solution? Ask the doctor to do more, which yeah. will only make us more vulnerable to burnout. It's a vicious cycle, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, and then and then they wonder, right? Because they're just like, oh, why are you threatening to leave? Why are you looking to go Private or can kind of get out of the healthcare system. It's be, because of this, right? Yeah. And I remember I was talking to somebody recently, um, Dr. Kristen Casey, and I was asking her, I was like, "What is what's your self care?" And her thing was like working less, right? Yeah. And that 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 opportunity isn't always afforded when you're employed, right, by the hospital system or the yeah, or if you're system. coming
1: out with like a quarter million student loans, like when you're yeah. coming out. <laughs> I mean, working less. Uh, can impact your ability to provide for your family or pay off mm-hmm. student loans, right? So yeah. not anyone, not everyone can afford uh, to do that. Here's a question for you: How has the pandemic impacted uh, private practice? Have you do you have any observations?
0: <laughs> We've been um, booked to the gills, right? Okay. Um, it's it's one of those things where, you know, so again, my my main job is working with kids and adolescents through the hospital system, but then I do have my private practice on the side uh, where where I do work with adults. I was overloaded, right? I could not keep up with the demand that I was getting from from adult side. Um, So I had to bring on, you know, I was begging for such a long time to find like another doc. I was like, I need somebody else to be with me. I need somebody else to be with me. Like I was refusing patients. I couldn't, couldn't keep them on right I couldn't even like because if I was booking a new patient that means I was blocking I think I was doing like 10 or 11 hours prep for practice per week so if I take an hour right that's 10 percent of my scheduling availability so that knocks out you know two three patients potentially that I'm I'm seeing on it that I've been seeing for years and it wasn't fair to them so I had to kind of say hey I need to kind of you know, stop taking new patients, which again, which just creates this this logjam of people. We saw with a lot of therapists as well. My therapists were just booked constantly that I have working with me, um, but finally, I was able to get some docs on board, and that you know allowed another couple docs to come on board with me, and that's eased the burden a lot. But no, for sure. I mean, we were booked, we have, we have plenty of docs, right? We have plenty of docs that we're, I mean, in regards to that we're seeing as patients, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, see, I see plenty of nurses. I see social workers. I see psychologists and stuff like that as well. And it's the constant kind of thing of like, I, I can't even breathe, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I mean, no, I, I can't even take a breath for myself to kind of recover because we're being so overworked.
1: Yeah, I agree, and you know, you you mentioned a good, an interesting point. How we have to be honest with ourselves and set boundaries with ourselves too, because there there comes a point that when you're taking on new patients, at some point it's a disservice to the ones that you currently carry, because yeah. it's it's hard to like get the ones that you the, the, the follow ups in a timely manner, which ultimately yeah. negatively impacts patient care for the current panel, right?
0: Yeah, and that was that was something I was definitely like seeing and like I was getting some feedback that like, hey, like I can't get appointments with you or I mean like, you know, that these things were happening that I was like mm-hmm. – I was getting that feedback and I was like, I have to do something. And ultimately it was that decision. I was just like, I just can't take new patients or I could take like one new patient per month essentially. And, and that was, that was it. And you know, when, when you're trying to help and everybody's, a, everybody's in a crisis, right? Everybody's struggling um, and and people are coming to you and they're, they're really begging for help, right? They're, they're literally begging for help. Um, please take me on, please help me out with this. I have a daughter who's doing this. I have a son who's doing this, my brother, blah, blah, blah. Like, and you can't say do anything, <laughs> right? That's not a good feeling. It's it's not a good feeling, right? It's that feeling that again, like for myself, I was like, you know, that we talked about, you said, mentioned burnout, like, oh, it was, was, we were beyond out, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It was well beyond that point. Yeah.
1: You know, you bring up an interesting point, how as docs, you know, one of our traits is that we're altruistic. We want to help. Like that's why we went through, you know, college med school residency. You know, um, we made these sacrifices because we want to have an impact in the lives of other people. But and altruism is a good thing. It allows for like pro-social behavior. I think it's good that we care about other people. Um, having said that, though, altruism can lead to suffering when you want to help, but you can't help. Yeah. And think about how often that happens in medicine, for example, when there's too many people to help and not enough hours in the day, right? Yeah. Or you know, often we, we see people who are treatment resistant. That can create some feelings in us of maybe feeling... Inadequate or helpless, right? I'm trying to help this person. I've tried everything that I can think of, and I, and I haven't been able to help them, right? That can trigger some some feelings in us. Yeah.
0: No, and and just to clarify, treatment resistant is not like a, a patient thing. Like, it's, it's yeah. one of those things I, yeah. I hear from people who are like, well, are you calling me treatment resistant? Oh. Like, that I'm not doing anything. It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's, be- it's the treatment that are supposed to work for you are not working. It's yeah. not because of whatever something that you're doing. It's just something the treatments, or maybe. You know something on our end that that we're doing wrong as well, and you know I there were definitely times where I would like think at night I was like man like you know I I I think as psychiatrists we're usually pretty good at our job right we have a lot of people that we help out and we have a benefit with, but the ones that we're that are not right or the things that are out of our control like they stay with us right they stick with us of and they, you know I would think about them and I'd be like man what am I doing wrong I need to be doing this like is there something else I should be doing, and that has an effect on us right. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and there's limitations in the interventions that we can offer. Like these medicines that we prescribe, for example, they don't bat 100%, right? right? They don't have that kind of a response rate. So thank you for clarifying. Like when we say treatment resistant, you know, we're not saying anything negative about the the human being, the patient that we're treating. We're just saying that some of the interventions that we have have limitations and further advances are necessary in in psychiatry and healthcare overall. Uh, But it's not a good feeling when you're trying to help someone and the tools that you have available to you are they're not working that that's um that creates some difficult feelings for us
0: yeah or other things even you know when I'm working with kids mm-hmm. and you know we're trying to work over a telepsych right over or the video and you know video appointments in psychiatry are fantastic for people like us right yeah. <laughs> for adults mm-hmm. for a lot of times with kids they just don't work you just can't do that Um, you need that hidden room. And then we had a lot of kids who were just suffering because of that, just because they weren't able to access care uh, for a long time. So how, and then, I mean, I would, again, like when I'm working with nurses, you know, and they were dealing in the midst of the pandemic, right. And, and patients dying. And, you know, I'd always ask them, I was like, how are you doing? How, how is that going for you? Like, what was kind of, what were things that you were hearing from, Again, people that you were necessarily maybe working with during during the throes of it.
1: During the throes of it? Um, yeah. It was very difficult. People were very scared, right? Because we mm-hmm. didn't have as much information on the, on the virus, right? So people were terrified going to work and then bringing this lethal virus home. So they were terrified. I noticed an increase in OCD behaviors like excessive mm-hmm. hand washing, yeah. you know, like doctors or nurses like taking their clothes off in the garage and, you know... Um, spending an excessive amount of time decontaminating. So I, I observed some of an increase in those uh, behaviors. Uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of worrying for the well-being of their loved ones, a lot of trauma, yeah. you know, seeing young people die from the virus. Um, it's traumatic because, you know, yeah. you see somebody in their 30s and 40s dying. Well, that's the age that we're in, right? You can see how it can um, steer up some existential fears yeah. that we may have, right? So it was difficult, Uh, for people to, during that time frame, in the throes of it.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like, I'll say for myself, like, I, when I got sick with COVID, right, I got COVID from my student, actually. Mm -hmm. And this was in November of 2020. So right before, before the vaccines came out. Mm -hmm. So this was like, OG COVID, right? And that put me in the Mm -hmm. critical care, you know, of the the hospital that I was at. So I was like, hospitalized, and I was bad, and everything like that. and my wife got sick from it too. Cause there was that lag time between when I was told that there was an exposure and, and then when everything from there, from when I started exhibiting symptoms, that, that guilt, right. It was like, mm-hmm. oh God, I got my wife sick. I could have gotten my kids mm-hmm. sick, like all this stuff. Like, you know, and thankfully she was totally fine and no problems with it. and the kids were fine and everything like that. But still like, I hear what you're saying. Right. Was, and like, I know my, my wife also is a nurse. She works in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, similar kind of stuff. She like changed, she come inside, change immediately, hop in the shower. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, definitely. We were like dodging air particles at that time. <laughs> right. I mean, that's how it was. Yeah. It was a very uh, scary experience to go through.
0: And then like since then, so since like, let's say like post vaccine initiation rollout and then like things settling down, like what are things have you kind of noticed amongst docs and other healthcare workers?
1: Well, I, well, again, the one thing that I'm observing is the fact that many hospitals are short-staffed, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. Having a hard time having the proper level of support, you know, in an ER, in an ICU, right, in critical care, and uh, the, the doctors are burning out, mm-hmm. you know, because they're taking on more and more patients. They don't have that support from staff that they're accustomed to. Like it's different if you're an ER doc or a ICU doc and you've worked with a nurse with for 10 years and you have that rapport with them
0: yeah. and they
1: can read your, like you guys know what to do when you see a case, but when you're working with somebody fresh out of school uh, yeah. or you're being short staffed, um, you're not sure how they're going to like handle that case. You're not sure what kind of care they're going to provide. So it puts more pressure on the doc. Right. So uh, I've been no- noticing a lot of burnout, uh, mm-hmm. since, um, in that phase of COVID, where um, maybe we're not as afraid of the virus because we're vaccinated, you know, or we've had it before. So, you know, we know how our body's going to respond to it. Uh, but now hospitals are having a difficult time with infrastructure yeah. and providing docs with the support they need to provide the care that's essential uh, for uh, patients.
0: For people who, for healthcare workers, docs who are hesitant to reach out for care because they're concerned about stigma, right? Stigma, mm-hmm. we know that exists. There's concern about like somebody's going to tell my hospital I'm going to lose my job. Somebody's going to, you know, seeking out help for some potential substance use issue. What words would you have for them to say, hey, let's do something? Yeah.
1: I think the first thing that I would say is that you can only... Suppress things for so long before they take a toll on you. Like it's only a matter of time that you suppress your thoughts your feelings Before they start to impact your ability to practice uh, Medicine, you know, you can only drink so much you can only um, Be so much sleep deprived you can only, you know, carry so much depression and anxiety before it takes its toll Um, and When you get care it doesn't just make you a better physician, it, it also it makes you a better spouse, it makes you a better parent, right? And you know, when, when you love someone, you get care for them as well, right? Because you want to yeah. be the highest version of you, not just for you, but also for those in your life that you care for deeply. Um, you know, so so care can take on different forms. You know, you may call, for example, the physician uh, support line. Um, and I can share you that number, you know, where I think they, they're available Monday through Friday, 8am to yeah, yep. midnight, yep. right. And they provide free care, uh, just making a phone call, right. And having a conversation with a fellow psychiatrist, a fellow physician. Um, so that might be one avenue. Another avenue may be just, you know, seeing a therapist, you know, yeah. um, somebody who's a medical, or excuse me, a mental health professional mm-hmm. and just having a conversation with them about what you're going through. Um and you can you'd be surprised just getting things off your chest and being seen and being heard uh, it has a tremendous impact uh, on one's uh, mental health
0: yeah talking with people helps right getting Amen. just get, getting it out getting it out in one way or the other either with somebody who understands you may not have all the answers but at the same time is like i hear you it sucks right um that makes a difference right that that empathic validation of like that sucks, and yes, it does suck. And your your right to feel like that it makes a difference when somebody else gets sure. that for you. And then for how when you're working with them, like, what are some things that you do maybe differently or, or helping out with that? With yeah, them, with I mean, population? I meet people
1: where they're at. You know, my number yeah. one goal when I meet someone is to build trust for to provide a safe environment where they can trust me with whatever thought or feeling uh, they have. Um, so I meet people where they're at. So there's some docs, for example, who they're very comfortable with a medical model, and they don't want to talk about thoughts and feelings, and they just want like a little bit of an antidepressant to make it through the day. And, uh, you know, they, they see me every three months for a refill of the medication. And, you know, we keep it at that level. And then there's other docs who I see every week for therapy and they do not want any medications. They don't because, you know, if if call in a script to a pharmacy, the pharmacy can reconcile that medication with an electronic medical record. And then it's on their uh, medical record that they're on a medication. So they want to focus uh, on therapy. They want to work on coping skills, challenging cognitive distortions, you know, um, find ways to solve and address, you know, stressors in their life. So the goal is to be flexible and to yeah. meet people, I think, where they're at uh, and to build trust. And I think once you've built that relationship, uh, then the work can evolve. But if the person doesn't feel like you care for them, uh, the, the work won't go anywhere, right? That therapeutic alliance, that relationship is an essential ingredient for healing.
0: Yeah. How, how often do you see, like... um Docs kind of being a little dictating how they want their things to go, how they want treatment to go for you,
1: for them? Um, You know, I I would say that's the minority. You know, I would say, uh, I'll say this about docs. I better know my stuff because they know their stuff. (laughs) And I get questions in depth like, well, what's the half-life of this medication and why this medicine over that medicine, right? (laughs) And will this cause weight gain? And they want studies. So I better stay on top of it because they really – Question, not the challenge, but because they want to know, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So that's been my experience. Uh, but I think once again, you provide safe, safe environment, and you earn trust. You earn trust. Uh, I think at that point, they're willing to work with you. Um. Uh, but and, and and they have to be involved in decision making too. Yeah. I can, you know, I, and this this happens with with all patients where it's like, here's yeah, my but- recommendation. Here's what I think would help you. And here's why. Uh, but if you don't want that, that's okay. And I'm still willing to work with you even if you don't want to go down Route A. Um, so that's that's been my experience. The, the, the majority they don't dictate, they they work. And I would say if, if if the if the patient, if the client if is dictating the work on, on a physician, I think that's a red flag. Because you can see how that can compromise quality of care, right? Yeah. Um so
0: yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's definitely something that, I mean, like I, I don't come across it. I don't see it either. I, I agree with you is that a lot of times they're, you know, if they're in a position where they're like, Hey, I'm here in front of you, like I'm here because I need help, but I'm going to trust you yeah. and you're right. And I'm not going to cause any issues or problems with that. So yeah. Yeah. do you see, I mean, how often, and then like, how often are they open and honest about their substance use and stuff too with you?
1: Um, Typically, people aren't um, open with that in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, trust is a process, right? We build trust. Mm-hmm. And what happens with people is they'll give me something, like a safer piece of information, something superficial. They see how I respond to that. And as you build trust, then you dive into, into deeper issues such as trauma, such as substance use. Um, but typically, that doesn't come off initially. Um and I think that's that 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 makes sense. That's that's wise, right? Like yeah. you've never met me before. Um, you you want to get a feel for me, just like I'm trying to get a feel for you in a session, right? Yeah. So they might keep it more pragmatic as far as a problem and issue, Like, hey, I'm having a hard time sleeping, and we'll talk about that. And as we build trust, and then they'll give me more and more sensitive information.
0: Yeah. I get that, and then I mean, there's definitely like some people that come to me for that specifically because they're like, "Oh, I, I know that you're expert, or so a quote unquote expert in this in this topic," so they're going to come directly to me for that. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's it is that aspect where it is, you know, with any kind of patient doctor is you is that give and take. You know, some people are going to be more forthright in the beginning than other people are going to be less so. So yeah, I agree. Do you, so there's a question that says the physician heal thyself mindset can sometimes lead to self neglect amongst providers. I know we talked about this a bit. How can we shift this to kind of say, get your self care in there, do your mental health work. How can we do this amongst ourselves to preserve ourselves?
1: Yeah. I mean, the physician heal thyself, as I think about it, um, it puts the entire responsibility on the physician and it reinforces that culture of stoicism. Like you have to do this all by yourself. You have to figure out a way uh, to get it done, right? And when, you know, living in secrecy and living alone and being in isolation, it uh, reinforces suffering. It allows for thoughts and feelings to grow and fester and to take over. And I I think what we need to recognize is that we're, we're human beings as physicians, And I find that quote to some degree dehumanizing, like, you know, you have to find a way to take care of yourself as if if we're not human beings who, you know, need help like like everyone else. Um, And and I think we do that by normalizing the fact that doctors need need help. You know, state medical uh, boards, they have to stop asking questions about our mental uh, health conditions or mental health treatment, And they have to realize that uh, getting care makes you a more competent physician. Hospitals, I believe, have a moral obligation to create programs that provide physicians and other healthcare providers with free and confidential care to physicians. Not like an EAP, an employee assistance program that's very, maybe vague, but like people who have experience and expertise in treating this population that faces unique uh, systemic forces. And also, again, we have unique Personality traits uh, that make us vulnerable to suffering. So I think once uh, you know, again, we, we normalize care. Uh, once we continue to reduce the stigma associated with us getting care, I think at that point, you know, we will realize that physician heal thyself is not a fair or realistic uh, expectation. One can argue it's a form of gaslighting. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's, right. It, it is absolutely gaslighting. And like, I mean, the last thing you want to do when you're done with when you're done with your work is. See yourself as a patient, right, and treat yourself as a patient, right. And then you're like, oh, one more person, than myself, to take yeah. care of, right?
1: By yourself, though, not not just, By just yourself. Like, there's a difference between like us engaging in habits and practices to promote self-care and wellness versus you have to heal thyself, mm-hmm. right? There's a huge yeah. difference
0: between the two, I believe. Oh, no, absolutely, because yeah. again, like we're 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 supposed to just suffer in silence and and deal mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. You talked about, you brought up an interesting point. There's the unique personality traits that come along with, with docs. What are some of those that you come that you see? Again, not to like, you know, yeah, talk shit no, about people. But I, like... We're generalizing,
1: but <laughs> yeah. it takes certain personality traits to like say that I'm going to delay, I'm going to extend school by another decade and take on six figures of debt and delay my earning years till my thirties. It takes a certain personality trait. So in general, as doctors, we're perfectionists, you know, we... Do not give ourselves any margin for error because a perfectionist thinks I'm either perfect or I'm a failure.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, there's no in between. And it makes sense because medicine reinforces perfectionism. You know, you make a mistake, you can kill another human being. You can really hurt another human being, right? Right, right. So, in general, we're perfectionists. In general, we're altruistic, right? I sure hope so because we're trying to help other human beings. And again, altruism is a beautiful thing, it allows for prosocial behavior. At the same time though, altruism can come at a cost to our mental health when we're always caring for others and not ourselves, or when we're in situations where there's limitations in what we can offer.
0: Yeah.
1: In general, as physicians, we're type A. We're type A workaholics, right? Um, there, I think there was a survey that showed that 58% of docs are type A, and my, I joke that the other 42% were type A, they just didn't know it. Because <laughs> you know, again, it takes a certain personality to yeah. work these 24 hour shifts. And mm-hmm. to take these exams, these boards that are, I don't know, 12 hours long, I've lost track how many hundreds <laughs> of questions we have to yeah. answer for these steps, these boards, right? So these are some traits that we have. And again, they're useful within the, the practice of medicine, Yeah. but outside of medicine, they can make us vulnerable to suffering.
0: And then there's there are the people who are narcissistic as well, that those people show up as well within the field. Um, and those people are harder to kind of reach sometimes, right?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and, and narcissism is on the rise. You yeah. know, when we look at the data from a societal point of view, empathy's on the decline, perfectionism's on the rise, narcissism's on the rise. And what I try to teach people is that behind that narcissism is a lot of inadequacy, feeling of inadequacy and guilt and shame. And the antidote to those feelings is not narcissism, it's humility. The recognition that you're no better or worse than anyone else. Like Just because you're a doc, it doesn't mean that you're better than anyone or worse than anyone. You're a human being, and you have some strengths, and you have some weaknesses, and let's maximize your strengths, and let's minimize your weaknesses so you can have a positive impact in your life and the life of those around you. But narcissism is very, very toxic, and it really hurts interpersonal relationships.
0: Yeah they have huge impacts on, you know, especially when we're talking about like in trainee, uh, you know, at GME kind of like the educational hospitals, which are training hospitals, you know, on trainees, right. On residents. Um, You know, I work with, again, I have patients who are residents who are dealing with this kind of stuff where they're like, you know, my program director is this, my, you know, head of the division is this. And like, it's it's pretty terrible the stuff that I hear right the environment yeah. that's the culture that's kind of being perpetuated in certain programs yeah places. and that's
1: what happens there it's perpetuated right that was yeah. really well said where okay so you're in this residency program three five seven years what did you learn from your leader to be a narcissist <laughs> and be, what are you going to do, do when you have a leadership position <laughs> pass yeah. it on yeah it's for survival right yeah y- you know people put on these these spears these these shields. Uh, these these this narcissistic facade because they're afraid to be vulnerable and human. So they present themselves as being more than, uh, which only hurts, again, the culture of a program.
0: Yeah. You talked about, um, we've talked about the like, kind of like ideal kind of resources. And again, I think what you guys are doing over there in Akron is fantastic. It's needing to be more and more because again, just, it, it, it is a universal pro- problem that's there. What else What else can people do, organizations do, healthcare leaders, what, you know, the, the quote unquote healthcare leaders who are yeah. MBAs, what can they do to help the people who are making money yeah. from that?
1: You know, as, as I think about it, I think one thing that they can do is involve this physicians in the decision-making. You know, so hospitals are experiencing challenges, no doubt, right? Yeah. They're experiencing financial difficulties. They're experiencing staffing uh, challenges, Right. And the the, the reflex for the person with the MBA is, how can I get more out of this doctor? How can I make them to produce more? And again, that's a very short-sighted solution that ultimately leads to burnout, which costs the hospital money. When a doctor battles burnout, it impacts patient care. It impacts the hospital's bottom line. And when they quit and they go to a different hospital, a competing hospital, it costs the hospital itself half half a million to a million dollars to replace that doctor. Yeah. So what I would say to like leaders is engage your physicians, like get them involved in the decision making, share data with them, with them, like hey, our hospital is losing X millions of dollars. What can we do together to find solutions to help turn the t- turn the situation around? And when you engage people, they come up with the best solutions. You know, my experience with patients has been patients come up with better solutions than me. Because yeah. they're living their lives. They know they're in the trenches of their life. They know better than me what's going on and what works. But you gotta engage people. And the yeah. same thing with physicians. Like engage them in the decision making and give them a sense of recognition and autonomy. Uh, instead of just, you know, coming down unilaterally, which ultimately builds feelings of resentment and resistance and burnout.
0: Yeah. And it should be a little bit more choice and and stuff than just like what toppings you want on your pizza that we're giving you guys to cure your burnout correct yeah definitely (laughs) um yeah no i think that's a huge thing right is and and we see this kind of pushback at times too is that like we'll come up with ideas i know like uh, i've said in plenty of meetings where it's like oh what can we do and we're going to address burnout and i'll be like less documentation that'd be great less forms let's do this and then they're like okay cool here's some more forms for you guys to do Right. Here's some wellness modules for you guys to do. Here's some things to do. Like, that's not it. Right. That's not the thing that we need.
1: No, I agree. And like these wellness modules on how to be more resilient, they're, they're insulting. Yeah. You know, even the most resilient docs suffer, number one, like studies yeah. show that like even the most resilient suffer. But number two, the fact that we made it this far is evidence of the resilience. The mm-hmm. fact that we made it through med school, the fact that we've worked 24 or 30-hour shifts, the fact yeah. that like we've made it this far is evidence of the resilience. So don't tell a doc how to be more resilient. Engage a doc in coming up with solutions to address these systemic factors.
0: Yeah. Yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what can we then, so that's mm. the healthcare The hospitals and stuff, but as a society, what can we do? How can we kind of raise awareness about this or address the challenges that that our docs are kind of facing?
1: As a society, to like let um, I'm trying. Can you rephrase the question? I'm sorry. So
0: like, um, so what can what can people do? So people who are not in the hospital system, right? So people who are again non medical people, what can they do to help out docs? To kind of realize and say, we hear you. We hear that you guys are struggling. We've beat you guys up a little bit, and you know we're we're angry that you forced us to stay inside and wear masks and get these jabs, quote unquote. What can we? Yeah. What can society do to kind of say, you know what? We don't want you to kill yourselves because we realize yeah. that you guys are killing yourselves at these astronomical rates. We see that you guys are drinking yourself to death and drugging yeah. yourself to death, and etc. Like, how can society support docs? I would say perhaps advocate for
1: doctors. I would say reach out to your local senator. I would say write letters and inform them of the situation and, you know, encourage them uh, to ask, to to create, you know, programs that provide doctors with free and confidential care where they're not worried about their license. You know, you want to provide care to doctors more upstream. You know, once People have been reported to the medical board just too downstream at that point. Like the damage has already been done and it's quite significant. Like you want to be able to provide care to somebody at the initial stages of a physical or mental health uh, condition, right? Um, so I would say, you know, reach out and, you know, to, you know, hospital leaders and to, you know, political leaders, people who have authority and write to them and help them understand that, like, if doctors are not doing well, everyone's going to be impacted. The healthcare system is going to be impacted, and ultimately, that hurts human beings who take their dad, their mom, their son, their daughter, themselves to the hospital. Because if you're seeing a burned-out doctor, yeah. there is a good po- possibility that the quality of your care will be impacted.
0: Yeah, right. I I don't know like the specific data and everything like that, but like the quality of care goes down significantly. Um, we know that. You know, I think this is the initial data was out there was like. The more hours the doc works, like the, the errors increase, everything beyond. Again, this is why we have like all the duty hour limits and stuff is because, you know, the people were essentially working at a, at a level where they're drunk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're practicing medicine or doing X, Y, and Z surgery, whoever else working in the emergency room. And they were like essentially intoxicated because of the fact that, you know, how long that they had been sleep deprived or working for.
1: Oh, I agree with you totally. Absolutely. Those changes were necessary. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think if people can understand what we're going through to some degree and they can advocate for us, I mean, that they, they would be tremendously helpful yeah. to our cause.
0: What can docs themselves do? um, proactively. Right. So trying to get ahead of the curve to prevent themselves from kind of getting into a situation where they're like, have to see one of us. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> would say,
1: yeah, no, a great question. I would say number one, you know, check in with your colleagues, you know, studies show that when we have healthy relationships, that is a protective, um, that's an antidote to burnout, having strong, healthy relationships with one another, you know, um, so that's one thing, and then prioritizing you know your your wellness as much as you can. And again, I'm not saying physician heal thyself, but I am saying physician uh, set boundaries with work, and remember that work is one part of who you are. And you're also a, a father or a mother or a son or a daughter or a sibling, and yeah. to make sure that you prioritize your wellness. And you know, look at it from a biopsychosocial model. You know, that's how I look at it in my life, where you know, I, I engage in physical activity regularly. Now, again, I work out when the kids go to bed nine o'clock at night, but that's <laughs> yeah. when I get to work out in my basement. Um, you know, practice either mindfulness or gratitude. You know, I practice gratitude every morning because it's easy for me to go down a negative thought process and to forget whatever blessings I have in my life. And I like to start my day with thinking about one blessing, not just thinking it, but feeling it, you know, feeling grateful for my son or my daughter or my wife or whatever I have in my life or I don't have. Uh, And number three, you know, um, relationships, again, they're essential uh, for promoting mental health. Now, again, these individual strategies, they're not going to solve everything, but they can at least help you tolerate the challenges of practicing medicine.
0: Yeah, and you had said it before too, is that like these are, you know, some of your things, right? Those are things that are going to work for you and they're not necessarily universal right um you know like i do a similar kind of thing with my patients they're like oh dr marisa what can i do to kind of like feel better i was like i don't know (laughs) and i say what what do you do to feel better what are the things that you do to kind of feel better right i you know i was like i enjoy playing video games like that does not mean that that's going to work for you right Mm -hmm. i enjoy working out and you know i have a garage gym, not just basement gym, but a garage gym. But like, I enjoy spending some time over there and, you know, clanging and banging in there. Again, is that the thing that's going to work for somebody else who may not have that access? Of course not, right? Who may not enjoy that kind of stuff or may have some uh, disabilities that limit what they can do. Like, right. That's, you know, obviously that's not going to be the thing for them, but it's just, you know, this, this idea that like everyone has to do mindfulness and yoga and X, Y, and Z. Like, again, that's, these are ideas, they're starting points, right?
1: I agree. I agree. And again, the best ideas come from our patients, right? Yeah. yeah. And what I tell people is, because there's so many things you can do, there's like hundreds of things that you can be doing. Oh, yeah. But I would say pick a couple that you think might be interesting, then they sound something that you want to try and give it some time. Like yeah. if maybe you want to go for a walk for 10 minutes a day and try that for a few weeks and see how you feel after having done that. Or maybe you just want to go out and stare at the sky, whatever. Pick a few things that you think you would like and stick with them consistently because in general, the unhealthy stuff that we do, it kicks in fast, but it comes with baggage. Whereas the healthy stuff, it takes time to reap the benefit. Yeah. You know, you work out once, not as helpful. You work out 30 times, that's when you really see the benefit, right?
0: Yeah. And I'm I'm reminded of that the meme that I see all the time of like I'm doing my my stupid mental health walk for things and like it's stupid working for me and now I'm angry that it's like working and yeah. it's, it's it's the reminder that like, hey, you've got to try this stuff and yeah. if you find it to be useful, stick with it and if you don't find it to be useful, there's other things. There's
1: so. other things. Keep it simple. Few, yeah. keep a few things and do them consistently is what I would say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You had mentioned some stuff, but what is what is your self care? Wrapping up a bit, so yeah, what, what definitely. Is I work self-care?
1: out. Uh, yeah. I'm, I work out four to five times a week in the basement, nine o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, sometimes Saturdays, I'll go to like the local uh, gym just to kind of mix it up and see some people. Um, I love to write, you know, because there's something about just being creative, having a blank piece of paper, and just pouring my thoughts on there and seeing what comes out of it. I mean, three hours fly by like it's nothing. Um, I love being with my kids, you know, I I just love like Saturday mornings, taking them to soccer, just watching them compete, you know, and just kind of cheering them on, you know, just being a kid with them sometimes. Um, Gratitude, I do that every morning, just one minute, feel grateful for something in my life or someone, uh, because it's easy to forget uh, the blessings that we have and get wrapped up in the negativity. Uh, So those are things that I do uh, pretty consistently for years now.
0: Nice, good, good, good.
1: What do you do? Let me ask that. What do you do, by the way? You mentioned the gym, and what else?
0: Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm a new father of a five month old now. Oh, congrats! I, so that was thank you. That was number child number four. So Whoa. it wasn't like a we we took a little little break in between number three and number four. And I was like, all right, here we go again. How old um, is your oldest? How old is your oldest? He's eight. He's eight. So he's, okay, you know, okay. we, we went, so right now they're eight, seven, six and five months. So I'm just mm. like, what the hell is wrong with me? Uh, <laughs> um, you know, we have a, a doctor and a nurse who, who definitely have a firm grasp on birth control and how, yeah. how everything works. Um, but no, um, so that were, that was the main thing. I spent time with them. You know, I do, we do like a Friday night movie night. I spend time. We go, yeah. go to my in-laws place a lot of time or close to my in-laws. Um, You know, again, like I love playing video games. I do like a lot of the content creation that's there. I enjoy, again, like the TikToking and Instagramming and tweeting and all that stuff because I, you know, it's a way to connect with other people. Right? We we've kind of siloed ourselves a little bit, and it's definitely a way to connect and. I have buddies come over for like you know UFC nights and boxing nights and okay oh, yeah all that kind I of stuff. I used to
1: watch the UFC back in the day. I was a huge uh, Anderson Silva fan. Oh yeah,
0: I thought yeah, he yeah. was the
1: greatest of all time. Him and John Jones, you know. Yeah. But uh, Jeff- I feel like it's changed lately, hasn't it? The UFC, it's not quite the same since it went with the ESPN.
0: It's 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 different from that regard. Like you can't like you know bootleg the streams anymore. You have to actually like buy, you have to actually buy the pay-per-views to watch yeah. them now. Yeah. Um But I I enjoy it. Like I I was talking with um. Kristen Casey about it a little while ago when I had her on was like, I love the the fact that it's so diverse, right? Because there's yeah. this image now that like that that UFC is like a MAGA country and it's MAGA this and white power and supremacy. And it's like it's actually not when you look at it. Like it's yeah. the 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 champions are super diverse, it's super sure. international people are Brazilians. Like I'm like, I'm a, I say all the time, like I'm a Muslim and like, it's yeah. the one sport where like Muslims are representing and are champions as well. And like, you know, we have somebody to look up to and Definitely. our kids to look up to and be like, you can do this. You can be a champion in a sport. And it's not just, you know, the people that we see in, in NBA, NFL all the time. Yeah. Right? Who's so. your favorite fighter? Uh, Kamar Usman is my favorite guy. Okay. Uh, I like Usman. I like uh, Israel Adesanya. I like him as well. Middleweights. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, John, John Jones just went up to heavyweight. So I liked, yeah. I liked, I loved Francis Nagano, yeah. um some of, some of those guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So Silva was just a little bit before I got into it. I, I really got into it with when Connor was coming up. Um, I didn't, I, but he was somebody that I, I enjoyed hating Connor McGregor. Oh yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> so yeah. But that's what that
1: I made mean, I, I thought, I thought the UFC uh, easier to follow before because there were fewer fighters and you can figure out their personalities. Yeah. Whereas i i, I it right now there's like so many fighters that i'm having a hard time you know following a few of them it's just because yeah. there's so many of them Um am yeah. right now i'm a steepy fan uh heavyweight he's from cleveland right? Oh, yeah yeah, York, yeah so uh fan of his obviously
0: he's he's got a big big fight coming up in uh november so i'm, exactly. I'm think, thinking about to thinking about going to that one at msg but we'll see that will be cool uh yeah no i've i've always in, i you know i've been a big professional wrestling fan oh, I've, yeah, always enjoyed, yeah, I've, I've always enjoyed yeah i've always enjoyed the theatrics of it and the athleticism of it athleticism. and how it, the athleticism people don't realize they're like oh you're just faking and i was like no no but it takes a lot of work to kind of quote-unquote fake this stuff right
1: i agree and it's an art too right they're yeah. telling you a story um on the microphone and yeah. on uh in the ring they're telling you yeah. a story um so yeah that's i'm a, I'm a wwe fan as well yeah yeah um, yeah. So definitely so, enjoy
0: that stuff. Yeah. So I've, I've always enjoyed that stuff. I've taken the kids to some of the stuff and they're always like, now they're getting into it more and more. So that's, yeah, it's cool. That's, that's my self care. So, yeah. and then the last question, right. Is your favorite, cause, cause I'm the kick shrink, right. So yeah. your favorite pair of sneakers. You're not going to like
1: this. I'm a LeBron guy. I'm from Cleveland. <laughs> oh, no! And He's the reason we have a championship <laughs> here. And he, um, and then the drought for us since 1964. Yeah. So if it's LeBron, I'm buying it. I'm a huge LeBron <laughs> fan. I know he left us for LA and Miami, uh, but you know what? I still love the guy because if it weren't for him, we would not have this title. And again, whenever he, every time he left, our team's tank. So he was the team
0: <laughs> all those he, years,
1: and he's still going strong. Let's give him some love, right? I mean, he's what 38 and still going strong. Like
0: yeah, no, so I'm,
1: I'm a LeBron guy.
0: I've been like an MJ guy and a, and a war. I'm a big Warriors fan. So, yeah. like, you know, he, he took that one from us. And I remember at, I went to a wedding in Cleveland a few years ago and it was actually after after the Warrior, after the Cavs won it. So, as soon as I get off the airplane, right, I think it's like once you get right there, first thing I see is like the uh, 2000 was a 17 champion Cleveland Cavaliers. I was like, oh my God, I'm turning. I'm Get me back yeah. off. Get me get me back on the plane. I'm out yeah. of here.
1: And can I say yeah. this? I feel like this <laughs> team should have had that too. Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, uh, Kyrie. Yeah, Ky- Harry got injured. Yeah. Um, I feel like it should have been two and two, but I'll say three and one. How's that? We'll, we'll yeah, settle we, for three and one.
0: We, we got you the three, and it was you yeah, know, you did, you did. So all good. Well, any any last parting messages for anybody who's listening or watching?
1: Yeah, no. Again, I appreciate the opportunity to be on, on on the podcast, and you know, hopefully, we provided people with some uh, useful information that they can you know uh, incorporate in their uh, daily lives and uh, not to hesitate to reach out uh, if they have any questions or want further information.
0: Yeah, we'll definitely drop the links for everything and your socials and all that stuff in there yeah. as well. So your main thing is Twitter, correct?
1: Yeah, I'm a Twitter guy. I can't figure out Instagram. <laughs> I just copy and paste my tweet onto
0: Instagram, you know? That's all good, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, well, Dr. Demetrios, thank you so much for your time and your work and your kind of service. I know it's, it is so invaluable to to our peers that are going through this stuff.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Solman. Pleasure catching up again.
0: Definitely, we'll see you. Maybe. Bye.